Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Mark Bianchi here from the Cowan Energy team with another installment of our Energy Transition podcast series where we're currently focusing on small modular and advanced nuclear reactors. In today's episode, we're joined by John Ball, who is Executive Vice President and Market Development Leader for GE Hitachi, which is a 6040 JV between the two companies and run by GE. GE Hitachi is one of the first movers in SMRs with their BWRX300 design, which has a growing list of blue chip customers. The business flies a bit under investors' radar as it sits within the broader GE, but that may be set to change as GE begins their planned split into healthcare, aviation, and power over the next few years. During our discussion with John, we cover the GE Hitachi nuclear business, BWRX300 technology, licensing process, and timeline to commercialization. So sit back and enjoy as we learn more about GE Hitachi. John, great. Thanks so much for, for joining us here. Um, maybe to kick it off, you could give us a little background on, on who you are and, and on the, the GE Hitachi venture. What are the origins of it? Um, how has it evolved over time? What's the ownership structure look like? And maybe go through the main commercial offerings and, and if, you know, to the extent you're able, share with us some, something about the market share. Okay, great. Thanks, Mark, for, for having me. So I've been part of the nuclear industry now for uh, 29 years, uh, the last uh, 24 plus with GE's nuclear business. Um, I've been part of essentially every segment in our in our nuclear business. I started off supporting our fuels business about seven years, including leading our manufacturing operation. Um, I spent uh, about seven, seven or eight years in our services segment, and I led our field service team, our uh, engineered solutions team. And then the last uh, several years, I've been uh, in the new plant segment, uh, including um, overseeing the the development, the creation, and the commercial adoption of the BWR X300, our uh, industry-leading SMR. Recently, I've, I've taken on a new role. And so my focus now is on the front end of the business um, as the uh, market development leader. So Really ensuring that that we we maximize the the market penetration and the opportunities uh, for this SMR. A little bit about the company, GE uh, helped pioneer the commercial nuclear industry, uh, both uh, here in the U.S. as well as in Canada, and and we had a number of firsts. Um, we formed our our nuclear division back in 1955, and very shortly thereafter, we had the very first reactor, the very first licensed reactor, license number one from the Atomic Energy Commission, now known as the USNRC. That was the Vallecitos Boiling Water Reactor uh, located just outside of Silicon Valley in 1957. Uh, 1962, we had the first reactor deployed in Canada, the Nuclear Power Demonstration Unit, it served as the basis for the CANDU nuclear fleet. Um, and then we also had the first Generation 3 design, the Advanced Boiling Water Reactor, delivered on time on budget in in Japan. You know, overall we have licensed 67 reactors in 10 countries. And when deploying nuclear technology, uh, really there's no substitute uh, for having done this before. Um, our business, we've got a JV joint venture with Hitachi called GE Hitachi. Uh, this is for new reactors and services. Um, we have a separate joint venture for fuel 
called Global Nuclear Fuel. Both of these joint ventures are 60% owned by GE and 40% owned by Hitachi. Um, so as a result, they're run and managed as GE businesses. Between these two joint ventures, we provide new reactors and fuels um, and aftermarket services to the global fleet. Um, if you think about our penetration in the market, and the U.S. is a good example, one-third of the nuclear fleet in the U.S. is based on GE's boiling water reactors. Um, in fact, GE Nuclear Technology provides roughly 17% of all clean energy that's produced today in the U.S. Um, if you think about the market share, um, especially around fuels and services, you know, many utilities self-perform, for, but for work that's actually bid, we roughly hold about 70% of the market share for fuels and services for the boiling water reactor fleet. Okay, that's great. I guess maybe um, as we think about what are the biggest drivers of the business for you, if you were to rank kind of where the where the revenue streams are coming from, um, could you just help us help us understand that a little bit better? Like is is servicing, is decommissioning, is extending life, is fuel supply? Like, how would you rank those as sort of most important uh, to maybe smallest? Yeah, I would say today, you know, given the fact we're in in a, a mode of, um, you know, ramping or deploying a, a fleet of SMRs, uh, the majority of our revenue stream today comes from fuels and services. And I would say it's roughly 50-50 between those, those two segments. Okay, super. And as as we think about the split of GE, right? The company has discussed about splitting into three: healthcare, space, and energy. I think the split for energy would be has been communicated to twenty twenty four. How does that change things, if at all, for for you when you think about you know what what the world's going to look like on the other side of that transaction? Yeah, I think you know as as is the case with many aspects of of the power portfolio, we don't anticipate any changes to the structure of our of our nuclear business. So really, business as usual as we go into the spin. Okay, great. And, and on global nuclear fuel, before we get into some of the SMR stuff, can you just talk about sort of what that are all the fuel offerings that you have? under that umbrella or is some of it outside of the JV within GE and and how should we think about the kind of growth dynamic there is that just going to grow with the broader light water reactor activity or or are there other factors that we should be considering when we think about the growth profile yeah so the all the fuel offerings are underneath uh, global nuclear fuel our our fuel joint venture um, we manufacture fuel in Wilmington North Carolina um, at our headquarters, have been doing that since the 1960s. We have a joint venture in Europe for for delivering uh, BWR fuel to the European market. And then our uh, joint venture partner in Japan, we have a, a fuel fabrication facility uh, for the Japanese market. Now, in addition um, to, the, and to the light water reactor fuel that we've been manufacturing for decades, we're in the process of developing the capability to manufacture metallic fuel for the natrium design. And we'll be doing that at our Wilmington, North Carolina facility as well. And yeah, we anticipate just as this SMR and advanced reactor market grow, um, that we'll see growth in both the, the fuel segment as well as uh, services. And and just for you know, 
people that may not be as familiar with um, the supply chain, so your involvement there is really on the fuel assembly. You're not involved in any uranium enrich enrichment or, or anything that's further upstream than that. It's just the actual fuel assembly. Is that correct? No, that's exactly right. So we we um, essentially can think of our fuel business as providing a service, a fuel fabrication service. The uranium is actually owned by our customers. It's sent to us in the form of uranium hexafluoride or UF6. We convert that UF6 into a uranium oxide, uranium dioxide to be specific. And then we, yeah, we press into pellets, we load into rods, assemble them into what we call uh, fuel bundles, and then ship them back to the customer. Yep. Super. Um, well, let, let's get into some of the, the SMR discussion. So, um, your SMR is a BWRX 300. I think that stands for boiling water reactor 10 and it's 300 megawatts. Correct me if, if that is got any of that wrong, but maybe talk about the, uh, the evolution of this design and you know, what are some of the, the major milestones to commercialization? And we'll get into more detail, but maybe just give us a high level introduction to it if you could. Yeah. So, you know, the, the entire nuclear industry, including uh, GE, we focused on developing larger and larger reactors, you know, really for the past several decades. Several years ago, our competitors in both the US and Europe had some pretty significant issues with large reactor projects going significantly over budget, past schedule. Given those challenges and at the time, you know, continued low gas prices, led to one of our projects, and this was for Dominion at the North Anna 3 site, we were deploying the ESBWR, which is Economically Simplified Boiling Water Reactor, very large, largest one that we had developed to date, 1500 megawatts, um, it got canceled. And so we knew at that point that the future of nuclear um, had to look different. And so we set out really to innovate uh, the future. So, you know, out of that, we we really took a step back and pulsed the market. Um, and we focused primarily US, Canada, and Europe. We talked to utilities. We talked to industrial customers on what it's going to take to deploy nuclear going forward. And you know, it was clear that SMRs were going to be the future, that a lower capital cost um, structure was going to be important. Um, and so out of that, BWR X300 was born. And you're exactly right. The X stands for 10th generation boiling water reactor. It's most recently been scaled from the ESBWR, which I mentioned, which was our, our most recently certified design. Uh, but, you know, one of the challenges is you can't just take a, a large reactor and just shrink it down and go smaller uh, without suffering diseconomies of scale. And so, you know, the key here was simplifying the design. And through some new innovation, which we now have patented, we've we've um, it's been licensed for, by the USNRC. We're able to use less concrete and steel per megawatt um, compared to to large reactors. So that new innovation also coupled with the fact that we've got proven technology. You know, if you think about tenth generation reactor. Turns out, ninety percent of the nuclear island or the reactor system is the same. As today, you know, same components, same materials, just smaller versions of what's already operating. But plus, it uses today's fuel, so you know this is licensable, deployable in a meaningful time frame. And you know that's important. You know, when we set out on this journey, um, that was a key. Besides having a low cost solution, 
customers said, you know, you really needed to develop something that can be deployed within a decade. And so just, again, given the design, the licensing pedigree, um, 10th generation really led us to, to focusing on boiling water reactor technology. There, there's a couple other technologies you have. So you mentioned the um, the ESBWR. There's also I, I've seen Prism and, and ABWR, and then you've also got the um, involvement with TerraPower. You mentioned a little bit on the fuel side, but I'm just curious if you could kind of talk to us about those other technologies. What's the future? Are they focused right now, or is everything kind of going towards the BWRX 300? And then what's the the scope of the the involvement with Natrium? I, I believe it goes beyond the uh, the fuel side. Yeah, sure. So, you know, yeah, I mentioned ESBWR. The other light water reactor design that we have is the advanced boiling water reactor. We really consider both of these reactors are available for deployment, but we really keep them, you know, on the shelf, if you will, um, in the event there's a customer interested in, in a large reactor deployment. I think given the fact that we've got this really elegant, simple cost-effective SMR solution. When we engage customers, the focus has been on, on BWR X300. Um, you know, one point on the advanced boiling water reactor, 1,350 megawatts. You know, I mentioned this was deployed in Japan back in the mid-90s on time, on budget. It actually was constructed in only 38 months, um, which is really, um, you know, best-in-class performance. Also, the first Generation 3 technology uh, deployed to market. You know, switching to the, the Generation 4 technologies. So PRISM is a sodium-cooled fast reactor. It's based on the experimental breeder reactor um, number two, EBR2, that operated at INL for about 30 years. We've actually been working on PRISM since the 1980s. This technology happened to be the basis for the versatile test reactor, which is currently... Um, you know, on pause or suspended, but it's also being leveraged in the natrium design. And so, um, you know, we formed this partnership with TerraPower to deploy to deploy natrium, and we we determined that we were much better off working together than trying to compete against each other on bringing a sodium fast reactor to market. So, you know, essentially, we took the best of Prism and the decades of work that we've been working on in that design. Combined it with the work that TerraPower um, had been uh, performing on their traveling wave reactor, and then combine that with a, an innovative energy storage system uh, to produce to produce natrium. Um, so two very strong companies, you know, working together. Uh, TerraPower has the overall lead for the natrium technology. They've got the lead on commercialization, but we're a key partner um, and co-developing the technology. And I mentioned uh, previously on the fuel side, our global nuclear fuel joint venture is also developing the manufacturing capability for the fuel that will someday power the natrium design. Okay, super. And as we think about growth in natrium, what's your, I mean, I'm sure there's limitations to how much you can discuss, but just the, the commercial agreement there, like if we think that natrium takes off and there's reactors all over the world, are you going to have some piece of each of those or or how does the has the sharing of participation in the, in the profitability of this work at, at a yeah they'll, high they'll level? still be right yeah there'll still be some joint sharing in in the work that's performed both to deploy new reactors as well as the servicing of of the natrium design and then of course as i mentioned we've got the the fuel 
the fuel aspect. Okay. Maybe back to the BWRX 300. I want to ask about kind of the the commercial opportunities and, and the milestones and everything, but just before we get there, can you talk about one of the things we hear from the other, uh, SMR developers is how their reactors are much safer than um, than prior generations. You know this whole concept of walk away safe, um, where you don't need all the the extra cooling infrastructure and backup power and all that stuff. What just what's the pitch on BWRX three hundred when it comes to safety? And maybe you could involve siting in that because you know we talk about these lower emergency planning zone radiuses that that could be around some of these reactors. How does that apply to you guys? Yeah. So BWRX three hundred works on essentially on the forces of nature and physics. Um, so essentially it it has what's what we call natural circulation. So it doesn't depend on um, pumps and power to keep the fuel cool. And so if you think about a, you've got to shut down the reactor, you have some event, um, this reactor can cool itself without operator intervention um, or the need for offsite power. And we've got what's called a um, isolation condenser. And we've got three separate trains, if you will. Each one of those is capable of cooling without operator intervention for seven days. And, and so given the fact that this is, you know, this not only is going to be the most cost-effective design that we've developed, also the safest. And what we anticipate through the regulatory, the licensing process is that the emergency planning zone will essentially be the, the site boundary. Can you talk to us about the about the licensing process that you're in in the U.S., just you know, where are you in that? Um, you mentioned some approval that you already have. Um, just just talk to us about that, and then related to that, you know, I'm I'm familiar with at least New Scale's process. They're going Part 52. Just curious where you guys are, Part 50 versus 52, and if there's certain merits to to either one that you would point out. Yeah, sure. So um, we actually don't believe that a standard design cert and the part 52 process is the best approach. Um, you know, even if our focus was solely in the U S um, you know, clearly having a design certification is helpful. Um, uh, but we're confident that there's a more streamlined process that we think could be better leveraged globally. You know, the process that we're following is, is what's called part 50, as you mentioned, this is the process that's been used for every operating plant today in the U.S., there's there's a lot of um, experience, obviously, in, in using that process. Um, essentially, it involves getting a construction permit or a license, followed by an operating license. I think it's important to note that many countries where um, we are currently interested in deploying our SMR, um, you know, besides the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Czech Republic, to name a few. They use a similar process. Um, once a construction application has been approved, um, that safety evaluation that was used in that submittal can then be leveraged in future submittals. So you can think about it as essentially we've created a generic technology safety evaluation. That's going to be the same wherever we deploy. Then the focus with new applications will be only on those items that are site specific, such as differing seismic conditions or differing country specific requirements. 
Um, so, you know, we believe that, you know, future applications can be greatly stre streamlined. Um, additionally, we're using the IAEA guidelines uh, for licensing. And so, you know, most countries around the world um, have mapped their regulations into those, those requirements. One of the things that investors have questioned is that it just seems like having a design certification gives you a lot of commercial opportunities. You can go say in front of a customer, hey, here's my design cert. It's already been vetted by the NRC. I mean, doesn't that give um, a leg up to somebody with a certification or is there some intermediate um, verification that you get from the NRC that's just as good? Or how do you how do you respond to that concern that people might have that if you don't have design certification, you're sort of lagging someone else that does? From a from a customer acquisition perspective, yeah. So you know, if you if you have a a as I mentioned, when we do one of these construction applications or or a license to construct in Canada, which I'm sure we'll talk about again, the the safety evaluation of that reactor has been reviewed and approved, and so you know, I think the credibility that comes with that is comparable to the credibility that you have with a generic you know, design certification. In both cases, you still have to go through and do site-specific and country-specific requirements. So you'll never, you'll never get away from that. We've, you know, we've studied this in detail. We did part 52 with the ESBWR. Again, we're confident that the most streamlined, the most cost-effective, the quickest time to market is by using this other, this other licensing process. Okay. Great. Well, maybe maybe talk about um, the the customer um, the customer opportunity set. So there's a bunch of customers in various stages of engagement. Can you just give her an overview of the few that they're furthest along and and what the the timeline to commercial operation for those might look like? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, let me start with OPG because um, Ontario Power Generation because uh, this really is our our lead uh, commercial opportunity. And you know, OPG initiated a, a global SMR competition back in the 2019 timeframe and uh, with a goal to select a technology to be uh, deployed at their Darlington site, which is located just outside of Toronto um, by 2028. And at the time, you know, they surveyed all available SMR designs, um, literally dozens of designs. And after a very rigorous two-year process, we emerged as the winner back in December of, of 2021. Um, you know, one of the key milestones to meeting that 2028 date is submitting our license application or a license to construct. Um, we did that just last week. So October 31st, OPG through um, our collaboration with them, a lot of the licensing and engineering work that we provided they were able to submit um, their license to construct for the BWR X300 to the Canadian regulator. So, you know, this is a very significant milestone. This is the very first construction application for any SMR in North America. So, you know, placing BWR X300 in the global lead for global operations. So if you think about the next set of milestones that will come, it's now in the hands of the Canadian regulator They've actually stated publicly that they're targeting a two-year review cycle 
So at the end of that cycle, we'll then be able to begin construction. Um, our first project, we're planning on a three-year construction phase. And so that gets us to that, that 2028 date. So that's OPG. That's uh, you know customer number one. Um, we also are um, working with the Tennessee Valley Authority. And you know, following OPG's selection at the end of 2021, we've seen just a, a a lot of increased momentum and interest in the technology, TVA being one of those. We're under contract with them to develop a construction permit application um, for the Clinch River site, which is located very close to the Oak Ridge National Lab. They haven't set a commercial operation date yet, but it's likely going to be in the early 2030s. They're essentially a year behind OPG. TVA and OPG are collaborating and they're collaborating on, you know, deploying BWR Hex 300 across, you know, both borders. They're also collaborating with the, with the regulator. And I mentioned, you know, the ability to leverage the safety evaluation that comes from a construction application. Well, we're going to be able to do that. A lot of the work that we provided for OPG can be leveraged uh, for TVA. Um, in addition to those two, Synthos Green Energy, which is a, a, a different type of customer. You know, typically all of our customers have been utilities. Synthos Green Energy represents an industrial um, company, which we think there's going to be a large opportunity for SMRs going forward. Um, they signed a letter of intent uh, to deploy at least 10 units by the mid 2030s. Uh, they formed a joint venture with Pekan Orlin. Um, Orlin is a is the largest. Um, company in Poland. It's a state-owned company. They formed a joint venture for the sole purpose of deploying BWR X300. And what they're looking for is number one, you know, clean baseload power, but coal replacement is another, you know, really important uh, strategic imperative for them, as well as a variety of industrial applications, including um, hydrogen production. Um, Carnful Next in Sweden, um, was the next to announce that they selected our technology. They have not set a timeline yet. Um, Sask Power a um, couple months ago announced the selection of BWR X300. They're targeting the mid 2030s. They're looking for up to four units. Um, by the way, OPG also is looking for up to four units at their at their Darlington site. And then we're in um, discussions with with many other utilities and industrial companies, um, primarily North America and Europe, although I would say that um, Asia, particularly Southeast Asia is, is you know, heating up. And many of these customers are requiring uh, fleets fleets of, of SMRs going forward. So, you know, tremendous interest um, and growing. And I, you know, I think, you know, some of the, the less advanced opportunities were in active competitions right now. Um, in the UK, in the Czech Republic, in Estonia, um, each of those have have different timelines. But you know, we can expect um, some announcements in in those areas over the, in the coming months. Super. Well, I mean that that's a lot of opportunity. Maybe if you sort of take a step back and aggregate all of that, what does that mean for sort of BWRX three hundred deployments? If we look out to say the middle of the twenty thirties. Are we talking about still, you know, maybe five to 10 globally, or is it a number that's much higher than that? Um, just kind of curious, you know, if you, you sort of aggregate all that and risk adjust it, what does it look like? Sure. 
Yeah, you know, I think it's 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 a hard number to call at this stage. But you know, if you just take those customers that I mentioned and what their plans are by the by the mid 2030s, you know, you can get to 20 to 30 units, you know, very realistically. Um, that number, you know, could go higher as interest continues to to increase. You know, I would say that supply chain and regulatory approvals um, could potentially pace the number of units that ultimately get deployed, especially um, if that number, you know, continues to increase. So, you know, just a couple of areas that we're um, being very proactive in, uh, but monitoring, as we know that those those do offer some challenges in, in bringing this technology to market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that the, the regulatory bandwidth is an interesting topic that's come up. And if there are suddenly several applications into NRC, I mean, when would they need to start preparing for for that? And and do you think that they're adequately staffed at this point, or how much how much staffing would they need to be adding to sort of accommodate what you see coming from you and and your your competitors? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a really good question. Um, I, I can't speak on behalf of NRC. You know, typically they staff you know from a variable perspective, like many of us do. So there's no question as as you know this market increases, as applications increase, they're likely going to need to add staff. You know, I would say the area that we're um, that we're really advocating for the, the entire industry that is is around licensing harmonization. You know, the, the nuclear industry is much different than um, aviation in that, you know, you think about an aircraft rolls off the assembly line. It's it's able, it's certified to fly anywhere in the world that same day. Um, not the case with nuclear. Every country has their own separate regulations and nuances. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a recognition um, and by many organizations, including the IAEA, that recognizes that harmonization, if we're really serious about decarbonization, if we're really serious about impacting energy security, that regulators are going to need to collaborate. And you know, we're very encouraged already. Um, the US NRC, um, with our work with Tennessee Valley Authority and then the CNSC in Canada and the OPG project, these two regulators are working together in doing joint reviews. Um, and so this is a this is a great first step. We're going to continue to need more and more of that. Um, and really the ideal state is that you have a, a licensing outcome, such as the safety analysis of a regulator in country A, approves it, and then that gets approved in country B. And really what we're, we're what we're only looking for are those differences in terms of site-specific requirements or perhaps the country-specific requirements and just go re-review those items and not do a full re-review. These are the kinds of things, um, this type of cooperation on the global scale is really going to be um, required, again, if we're going to make a meaningful impact to, to climate change and, and energy security. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess it sounded like the Canadian process is maybe a two-year review process, at least for, with OPG now, uh, this latest submission. Where do you see that going? And you mentioned, I think, three years of sort of construction timeline. So maybe the timeline is is a five-year process from 
start to finish, but I don't know if there's any other color you'd want to provide around that. And then where do you see that going over time? Is there an opportunity to compress that timeline significantly or maybe, you know, the, the manufacturing is manufacturing and it can only go so fast. Yeah. You know, I think that if you just look at the licensing piece, um, you know, I mentioned that um, let's, let's take SASC power as an example, same country, same regulator in Saskatchewan. We've already submitted a license to construct for the Darlington site. We, we are creating what, what we call a standard design, meaning the reactor that we deploy in Canada is going to be the same as the one in the US and Europe around the world. And so the safety analysis that has already been reviewed under the Darlington for OPG under that submittal, it's the same as what we're going to submit in Canada or in for SAS Power. So you know, one one would expect that you, we we should be able to get a more streamlined um, review process, given there won't be a need to go re-review all of that safety analysis, but rather focused on those areas that are site specific. And the other piece is, yeah, certainly on the construction piece, we anticipate that um, there's going to be learning with every one of these projects, um, and so. We're targeting a three-year construction cycle on unit number one. I mentioned, you know, 38 months for the advanced boiling water reactor, which is significantly larger, you know, 10 times larger, if you will, structure-wise than BWR X300. And so, yeah, we, we believe that we can, we can work the construction cycle on BWR X300 down, um, you know, perhaps approaching two years or even less. Wow. Um that that's that's pretty impressive. One of the things that that's come up with the the concept of the small modular reactors just generally is nobody's actually built one, right? And everybody says we're going to leverage supply chain and we're going to build it modularly and plug it all in together once we get to the site, but it hasn't actually been demonstrated. Um one of the common responses to that from the industry is well we build all sorts of other stuff modularly, so there's precedent because of that, but maybe just talk to us about the confidence in being able to deliver um, the BWRX 300 kind of on time, on budget, and what are their steps in the supply chain that need to occur between now and then to to kind of get it get it prepared? Sure, yeah, I think you know what gives us confidence that we can do this on time, on budget. The first the first piece is experience. And, you know, again, there's real, there's no substitute for having done this before in this industry. Um, and I think the ABWR rollout in Japan serves as an excellent proof point. You know, again, the, the 38, 38 month uh, construction cycle. And the way we did that was through a, a really um, thoughtful modular construction approach. And so, you know, we're going to leverage um, that the learnings and that approach um, on BWR X300. Uh, I would say the second area is the fact that, you know, this is a, a proven technology and we have very simple systems. You know, as I mentioned, 90% of the reactor system is exactly what's already been manufactured and sourced previously. Um, the remaining 10% leverages existing components and materials. So there's really nothing exotic uh, or challenging to manufacture. Uh, you know, you'll hear there are other designs discussing the need for prototypes or demonstration projects, um, in part due to either novel designs 
complex designs that ultimately have to be demonstrated. Um, you know, unlike those, again, 10th generation reactor. Um, and so we have, we have supply chains that exist today. So rather than going out and trying to develop new capabilities, what we're doing is expanding our supply chains. Um, and so, you know, our focus is on some new regions uh, for expansion, like Canada, to support OPG, SAST power, and then exports out of that country. Um, we're already working on supply chain expansion and partnerships in other regions looking to deploy this technology, um, US, Central Europe, UK. And then the, the, third, the third area is, is really around fuel and the certainty that our fuel offering brings. You know, for BWR X300, our fuel is commercially available today. It's called GNF2. It's manufactured at our Wilmington, North Carolina headquarters, in addition to our joint venture in Spain for the European market. We've already delivered more than 25,000 of these fuel assemblies. 70% of the global boiling water reactor fleet has used this fuel. It's operated very well, highly reliable fuel. And you know, it takes 10 years to design, license, deploy new fuel types. Um, and this is these, these are for you know really just evolutionary changes. We've been doing this since the since the 1960s. So we have a lot of data points. Um, it takes a lot of time. We don't have to go through that. And so, you know, unlike other SMRs and advanced reactors, we've got commercially available fuel that's manufactured today. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing very strong uh, market adoption of this SMR. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. What what what's the cost of of this um, plant, or, or you know, what, what's what's the cost of your design, and maybe talk to us about how that translates into the levelized cost of electricity, because everybody's trying to compare, you know, nuclear to all these wind and solar alternatives. But that comparison is somewhat flawed because levelized cost misses some of the aspects of reliability. But regardless, people want to know. So, to the extent you can talk to us about the cost, it would be uh, be greatly appreciated. Yeah, let me let me start with the levelized cost or the LCOE. And as you mentioned, this is a this is a metric that that most people you know they want to they want to understand. I will say this is a it's a challenging metric. You you mentioned a couple of reasons, but you know there's numerous variables that are required. Um, in its in its calculation, um, some of which are highly sensitive, um, such as construction timelines, financing costs, or financing rates, um, interest rates. You know, as a technology provider, we don't have visibility to the total costs that an owner might experience um, that end up being project dependent. So, for example, land costs, permitting costs, other internal customer costs. These can vary widely from project to project. So, you know, all that said, uh, what we do have visibility to is what we deliver, which is basically the physical plant, you know, the overnight cost of capital of deploying that unit and, and the associated LCOE uh, based on expected operating cost. And so we believe that a $60 per megawatt hour is an achievable target on our nth of a kind. But again, to compute the total LCOE requires knowledge, understanding of, of you know, total customer cost. You know, we believe that the, the most important cost metric for nuclear is 
just simply the overnight cost of capital. Unfortunately, we're in a, as I mentioned, we're in some active competitions. And so, you know, we view that as confidential at this time. What I would offer, however, is that, you know, we uh, are confident that we, that BWR X300 will be the most cost competitive SMR in the market. And this is really driven by a number, number of factors. Um, the first being that boiling water reactors are inherently simple to begin with. They are what's called a direct cycle system. So unlike a pressurized water reactor or PWRs, we don't require a secondary steam cycle. So when we go smaller, you know, the, the, these secondary steam cycles are big systems, steam generators, pressurizers that need to be um, included. So it becomes very challenging for um, pressurized water systems to become economical as you go smaller. We don't have to deal with that challenge. And we've taken this ability to simplify really to the next level and, you know, through the innovation um, are able to achieve overall costs on a per megawatt basis that are lower than, than large reactors. And, you know, this, this advantage, this, the fact that we've developed this really simple, elegant system can be seen in doing side-by-side -side comparisons. By doing side-by-side -side comparisons, you can get a general idea of the relative should cost between two different reactor designs. So for example, what's the volume of concrete that each design requires on a per megawatt basis? There's some pretty significant differences between designs. Um, what's the size and the number of vessels required to produce a comparable output? What's the size of the reactor building on a per megawatt basis? So, you know, all of these metrics equate or translate into real construction costs. And based on our side-by-side -side comparisons, you know, we believe we have a significant advantage, which is another driver for the, for the adoption of this, of this technology. What's your scope of the the overall project? I I suspect that you know you're probably limited to just the the nuclear reactor side of it, and then you know the turbines and stuff are handled by someone else. But I don't know, maybe that's not the case. Just talk to us if you could about how much of the plant is actually under your responsibility, and then if there's an EPC partner, you know what are they on the hook for, and how does all that fit together? Yeah, so you know we. If you think about just just the overall the overall plant, we we are the designer of record, so we have full responsibility to integrate the full plant design. So, in addition to that, we also are responsible for uh, the licensing, as we talked about. We do the the manufacturing, the procurement of key reactor systems and components. We're responsible for the plant startup and commissioning. Um, and then, of course, we manufacture and provide the fuel, both for initial cores and, and reloads, and then provide the, the aftermarket services. Um, you know, clearly, we um, we partner with a um, turbine generator uh, supplier, and then, um, you know, additionally, we have an EPC um, that that we'll partner with. We don't doing construction is the furthest thing from our core competency, and so. You know, we've um, partnered with with many um, in plat. In fact, if you think about just the overall GE power um, set of businesses, we've got extensive experience partnering with different EPCs around the world. And so, you know, we're really leveraging um, 
really excellent EPC relationships that that already exist. You know, you know I, I did touch on construction, and and I think this is an important point to to elaborate on as well, relative to our um, to our design. Construction ends up being um, you know roughly half the cost of of one of these units, um, so it's it is not insignificant. So we want to make sure that's as streamlined as possible. So we've innovated to reduce cost on the construction side. What we're trying to do is move as much into a factory setting, a re- very repeatable, predictable factory setting as possible. And so just to give you an example, um, the construction process that we're using, it's although it's novel to the nuclear industry, it's used every day around the world. And essentially, it, it involves digging a circular shaft. So you think about you know the tunneling industries, mining. Uh, we do this every day around the world. And so our reactor is going to sit largely underground in this circular shaft. And what that what we're able to do is eliminate the traditional bathtub excavation process that today's existing nuclear plants um, utilize, as well as some um, SMR designs as well. It's like a million cubic yards of of excavated earth that we're eliminating. And then, you know, in that process, you got to bring in engineered backfill, rebar and concrete, all in the name of, you know, seismic performance. We've eliminated all that. And so what we're using are what's called steel bricks, which is a factory fabricated system that, you know, sent sent to site and pieced together very much like a, a Lego set. And so these steel bricks form not only the walls of the reactor building, but also the containment structure. And so by doing that, we think we, you know, we can eliminate or or reduce cost in time to construct um, significantly. That's that's fascinating. Um, I, I wanted to move on to um, talk about kind of the customer prospects a little bit more. Where um, you mentioned, you know, OPG and TVA, who are sort of the um, the leaders for for customer opportunity, but those are sort of quasi government entities that um, don't have a bunch of investor public utility investors to answer to. And I'm curious, what gets those public utility companies, like the investor owned utilities, to come forward and sign up? Do they need to see some of these projects in commercial operation um, and kind of proof of concept? through commercial operation before before signing up? Or how do you see that dynamic? And what's the feedback from those types of customers? Well, there's a number of them right now that are currently evaluating SMRs. You know, we're we're helping assist um, in some cases, you know, they've got their integrated resource plans. And so, you know, we we know that these investor-owned utilities, um, you know, they they believe that there's a pretty large SMR market. The, the Nuclear Energy Institute, or NEI, recently did a survey of U.S. utility execs, which is basically their members, largely, mostly investor-owned utilities. And they indicated they, they had a need for 90 gigawatts of SMRs uh, by the year 2050. And so, you know, that translates into 300 of these SMRs the size of, of BWR X300. So, um, you know, there's a strong need. In terms of do they need to see proof of concept first? I would say that you know everyone is really different. Um, some investor-owned utilities and even some state-owned ent- entities want to see an SMR in commercial operation first, and it really depends on each individual company. So I wouldn't say it's it's 
investor-owned utilities are one way and state-owned are, are, are different. I think it really depends. I, I think what's common is that whoever we talk to, um, what customers really want is technology that is deployable in a meaningful time frame that you know is proven, it's licensable, and and again, having that available fuel. This is a, a key theme that we hear back is is really an important factor. Okay, super. Well, maybe you know we're coming to the end of the time here, so to to wrap it up, maybe you could talk about the milestones that investors should be looking for over the next kind of twelve to twenty four months to to confirm that the BWRX 300 is on track for commercial deployment. So what are the, you know, what are the news items that we should be looking for to be, be announced and, and provide proof of uh, this whole plan? Sure. Yes. You know, first I would say, you know, we're, we are on track to be the first grid scale SMR uh, deployed. As I mentioned, you know, the first major milestone is that license to construct application that was submitted to the Canadian regulator um, on October 31st, again, placing BWR X300 in the lead to to begin actual uh, construction. I would say the next really important milestone is uh, from the CNSC. This is the Canadian regulator. Um, You know, they've stated again publicly that they view this as a 24-month review cycle. That's their goal. Um, So, you know, that will indicate whether or not we're on track to, to begin construction, um, you know, about two years from now. Um, And then, you know, I think the other one is in the U.S. I mentioned the construction permit application that we're working on with the Tennessee Valley Authority, roughly a year behind OPG. So that'll be another important milestone to watch for. And then, you know, I mentioned we're in many other commercial discussions and competitive evaluations. And expect some some announcements here in the in the coming months, U.S., U.K., and, and Europe. Well, super. We're gonna have to leave it there, but that's been fantastic. John Ball, Executive Vice President of Market Development for GE Hitachi. John, thanks so much for joining us. Mark, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.